0: Hello. That worked. Yep. Lovely. All right, everyone. Yes. Are you all right? Because yes. there's a difference between a statement and a question, isn't there? When you walk past someone, you just go, "All right, all right." It's different to when you stop someone and ask them, "Are you all right?" There's a difference in a question. Is this going to work? Great. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at the questions of God. Questions are important. Um, In my line of work as a teacher, the the question is so key in being able to do what I do. And also for the kids as well. It's a questioning relationship. What are you doing? Where are you going? Do you think that's acceptable? (laughs) Questions are really key in... In, in challenging, in encouraging, in building, and in, in that relationship. And, um, I think questions are, are the most transformative form of speech, I'd say. But we're gonna look at the questions of God today. And it's curious, really, that God asks questions. Why should God ask questions? He knows everything. God is omniscient. Hopefully this is gonna work. Yeah, so we're gonna, I've done it in, in a, Drawing form because it helps me conceive my ideas and hopefully then you've got a visual as well for those visual learners. Teacher today, so God is omniscient. What that means is God knows everything. There's no question that God could ask which He doesn't know the answer to. So why would God ask a question? And we see this in Scripture. I'm going to be focusing mainly on the Old Testament today. I'm not necessarily going to be looking at Jesus' questions, although that is another preaching itself. we're just going to start with, with the, the Old Testament of what did the people of God know about God through his questions. And I've drawn a little seatbelt there, so buckle up. We're going to be flying through scriptures today. In Hebrews four thirteen, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's nothing that you can answer that could surprise God. God knows it all, for he is all-knowing. And we're going to be looking at nine scriptures today, which is quite a lot. But I've got 45 minutes, so that's easy. Um, and the reason why I've joined a little speaker there is the reason why I've thought on this is because Natalie and I, we're, we're listening through the Bible in a year. Many of you will be reading through the Bible in a year, but we're trying to listen to it um, on our little Bible app. Let me get it out. Little Bible app. Um, there's a little play button. Has anyone ever noticed that before? There's a little play button, and you can get it speaking to you. Let's see if this works. So we've been doing that, and um, what's really interesting is that often, for me at least, when you're reading the Bible, you're quite familiar with it, you can kind of skim through it, the, the, the listening to the Bible causes you to slow down. And I like the guy's voice. It's very like this and very straight. But his voice changes when he asks a question. And so when we've been listening to the scriptures, particularly through Genesis, when we hear God ask a question, it stands out more. And at least that's what we found. So the questions of God. So let's start at the top. Genesis 3, verse 8. If you want to find it with me in the Bible, you can. So I'm looking at Genesis 3. There's a load of questions. In the creation story, or at least in the full story. So we're going to start at Genesis 3. This is one of the first questions we see or we hear God ask. Verse 3, so chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to read from. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Adam and Eve had sinned. They'd done the first sin. Um, this is a, a story of many firsts. They'd, they'd done the first sin, they disobeyed God. And God went out. It says he walks in the cool of the day in the garden, or in the wind, in the breeze of the day. God's walking out. And we can only presume that Adam and Eve weren't where they usually were. They were hiding. So God says, where are you? God knew where Adam was. God knew they were hiding, but he calls out an invitation to them. An invitation to confess. An invitation to to meet God in relationship because they were hiding. They didn't want a relationship with God. But God still calls out in a loving, yet... honest voice. Where are you? I'll read on. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, so God said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? You know, Simon, I said about this Bible being written on. So this Bible is an old Bible of mine. It's got loads of writing. I can't find myself anymore because it's so messy. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knew that they'd done it. God knew that they'd done it yet his question was trying to bring out in Adam his confession his honesty and it was about that relationship. God knew he could have just said get out, fed up with you now and in one sense there is is a judgment, there is a punishment there is a curse for humanity but it's it's a curse still in relationship with God. So where are you? The first question we hear God say. Moving on to Genesis 4, if you want to turn with me, should only be one page. Genesis 4, things get worse, don't they? Things get worse. I always have to tell, and when I, um, when we have to pay for repairs on the car, I say to Natalie, it's normal. Things naturally get worse. Plastic brakes wood rots and metal rusts is going to happen. And we see this actually, you know, we're looking forward to the day when that doesn't happen. But we see this happen. Genesis 4, verse 1 to 10. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, did you drink this earlier, Natalie, sorry, this water? Okay, that's fine then. I have produced a man with the help of the Lord, And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? So what's interesting here is that out of all the statements that God says in this story, most are questions. If you, do not, if, you, if you do well, will you not be accepted? We don't really know what it was about Cain's offering that was not acceptable, but <laughs> presuming by his behaviour it was something to do with his attitude or something to do with his nature. But God says, where is Abel, your brother? God knew where he was. Lay on the floor with his head smashed open. Yet God asks Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Not accusing, although God could. And judgment comes in compassion. But God says, where is Abel, your brother? It continues. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? My, God's asking a question and Cain comes back sarcastic. (laughs) Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Where is your brother? What have you done? And it's actually, God also asks that question to Eve as well, when Adam kind of blames. God says, what have you done? What have you done? Not accusing, but allowing the person to come forward and to confess. So you use it as a teachable moment. And the reality is that before God, we are all naked. All will be revealed anyway. And yet God asks, What have you done? You often get these people who are, uh, Natalie and I, we like to watch crime documentaries. Please forgive us. We um, get these people who deny it till the day of their death. And then on the deathbed, death bed, they'll say, What they have done, and God's there asking these people kind of you know straight in by asking that question. I believe that God's looking for that redemption, and actually, the the curse on Cain is a protective curse. Mad, let me just have a drink. What have you done? The amount of times I ask that in a day at work, it's untrue. What have you done? What have you done? Genesis 16. Fast forward a few, I, gonna, I don't know, 100 or 1,000 years. I'm going to say a few thousand. People were living for time then. Genesis 16, verse 6 to 10. So, this is the story about um, Sarah or Sarai and Hagar, how Abraham was trying to achieve God's promise through his own activities, his own wrong activities with his servant, and we read in verse 6, But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her. This is Hagar, and she fled from her. So we, we read that Abraham, or Abraham, tries to get the promise of God of many children through his servant, Hagar, and Sarah says, you know, this is not right, Sarah says, Abraham says to Sarah, do what you want. And Sarah says, go on, get lost. Get lost. I'm not happy with you. Sarah should have been talking to Abraham like that. But anyway, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah, or Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel blesses her. So I'm, I know this is the angel, but this is I'm viewing it as a manifestation of God. The question there is, where have you come from? And where are you going? It's interesting, God knew that. God knew what had happened. And he wants to be involved In our journey, wherever you are, whether you're fleeing from God or whether you're fleeing to God, the question can be, where have you come from and where are you going? God wants us to not make our own destiny, but to to understand our journey in him, to narrate it and to be able to wrestle with it in him. Moving on a little ahead in Genesis 18 verse 9 to 15. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, Abraham said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah your wife shall have a son. So this is a meeting between Abraham and and God again reaffirming the promise of many children and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him now Abraham and Sarah were old advanced in years the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah which is a very nice and poetic way of saying something isn't it the way of women had ceased with Sarah so Sarah laughed to herself to, to herself saying after I am worn out and my lord is old shall I have pleasure The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? This is beautiful. I I think this is my favourite question that God asks in the Bible. Is anything too wonderful, too hard, too difficult, too outrageous for the Lord? The question there, I mean, it's rhetorical almost, isn't it? It'd be mad if Abraham said, "Well, yeah, maybe, probably. But it's a rhetorical question, but it's a question which God asks to provoke awe, to provoke worship, to provoke wonder in Abraham, for him to have faith, to go, actually, no, nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. It would be an oxymoron for the most powerful in the world to not be able to have power to do something. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? No. Genesis 32. Well, I can see Fran is being faithful in it. Well done. <laughs> Genesis 32. This is one of my favourite stories. It's a story of Jacob making journey to either reconcile or war with his brother who he had cheated. 32, I'm gonna start from, where should I start from? Let's start from 22, start from 22. The same night he, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of a Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. So this is the the night before. Jacob knows that this is going to be a life-changing moment. He's about to face his, well, his demons, not literally, as it were. Face his past, face what's happened, and he spends an evening alone. When the man... So, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I don't know what the Hebrew culture was like at the time, but it's not often that. It's just someone comes and wrestles you to the the evening. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Jacob said, Was it Jacob who said? No, sorry, then then the angel or or the man or, or, or God in this instance said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The question to Jacob is, what is your name? Jacob's name meant cheat, liar, thief. What is your name? And Jacob's been running from this history of his cheating, of his lying, of his stealing, of his his trickery. And the angel of the Lord says, what is your name? Again, similar to the whole, what's happening with Adam, with Cain, with Eve, what have you done? What is your name? And Jacob says, cheat, liar thief and the angel says you shall be known as israel for you have striven with god and man this question is a transformative question that like god asks what what are you what were you who, who who are you what is your nature what is your person not just to leave us there but to transform us and bring us forward it's a beautiful question what is your name if you've been blessed with a good name, you can say it with pride. <laughs> ben means son. But yet yeah, God might still ask me, what is your name? And we see actually a lot in the Bible of these name changes in these people's you know, character arc. a change at a point because God renames them. But first he says, what is your name? Moving forward to the Exodus story, Exodus 4. This is one that I know... Dave Shields has preached on many times, bless him. Exodus 4. Again, um, narrative here is that Moses is about to meet with God. Moses ran away from Egypt. We get a lot of running away, don't we, in the Bible? These patriarchs, up to no good. He's running away from Egypt. He meets God out in the wilderness. Exodus 4. Then Moses answered to God, he said, but behold, they, this is the Israelites in Egypt, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is in your hand? Moses said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. (laughs) And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and so it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak, and so on. What is in your hand? I'm sure many of us who have been in this church for a while will know that this is a story of God taking us where we are, and using what Moses has. Moses was a shepherd, he had a staff, and God said, All your experience, all your sojourning in this land, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work out for my good. To commission. And what's, what's interesting is commission means to co-mission. God had a mission, and his question, what is in your hand, was about Moses joining God in that. And so God also asks. To us, what is in your hand? What is it that you can do? Maybe you're a good cook and you want to sign up for the health and hygiene. Maybe you're good at chest compressions. (laughs) But, but, But realistically, God will use what we've been through throughout our history to use it for his purposes. And he asks us, what is in your hand? Have a think now. What is it that is in your hand? Your past, your experience, your enjoyment. God can use it. Okay, moving on. Going past the law, straight into 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. What we see here is a period of, um, well, as I said, you know, things get worse. Things are going worse for Israel. Um, Elijah is fleeing from Jezebel. And we're going to read from, Hmm. let's read from verse 1. Let's read from verse 1. We got time. Ahab, so this is King Ahab, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. So Elijah was a prophet of God and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Of that, he ran for his life. <laughs> but he himself, this is Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. I'd like to know what was in that cake. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? I love this story. I love that Elijah was like, God, let me die. God was like, have a sleep. Have some food. (laughs) A glass of water. We'll talk about it in a few days time. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said... I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed all your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. What are you doing here? God's questions often come before a real encounter with him. If you haven't noticed as well, many of these stories that I'm flicking through, hopefully we're aware of them, are key moments in the, in the people of God's history and their experience with him because God revealed who he is to them in those questions or through that dialogue. What are you doing here? And Elijah tells you still, I'm the only one, God. I'm the only one. There's no one else. I've been, very, I've been doing your work and look, here I am now. And it wasn't a true narrative, but God wanted to hear it. What are you doing here? And I think what's interesting is when we look at these questions, you know, God gives answers too. <laughs> and it's true in the Bible, God gives some very blunt answers. But he often starts with a question. I think that's lovely. I think that's wonderful. As a teacher, as a teacher, I, sometimes a question is more powerful, you know. I see some kids talking. I've got this really annoying class right now. Um, and I thought the two most annoying kids had been taken away from it. As a result of COVID, not that I was rejoicing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they were still really annoying. And um, the one was talk and this kid talks a lot. And he's talking over me. I'm doing a demonstration. I say, what are you doing? And actually, he's handing a- i mean, this isn't, this is a bad analogy. But he's handing a pencil sharpener to someone else. He's actually doing an intrinsically good thing. Yeah, I just want to yell at him. So the question, what are you doing? that allows for a connection to be made rather than simply get out, you're talking over me once again. Questions are really powerful. Sometimes what I like to do if I finish the class early is I ask the question, I say, class, we've got two minutes, you can ask me any question you want. I'm not gonna promise to answer it. Some other questions I get are curious. Some other questions I get are strange. Some of them are just out weird. Um, but Google's often our friend in those moments. But that question, what are you doing here? You know, God knows what he's doing here. And yet God uses an opportunity for that encounter and that restoration. And again, that recommissioning. Elijah goes back out in, in strength as a result after this. God could just say to Elijah, you're wrong. You're a fool. Stop feeling so sorry for yourself. I've just given you some great cake. You need to get up. Come on, get back to work. Yet God asks, what are you doing here? And listens to Elijah. Job 38. We're moving forwards in the Bible, yet backwards in time. Job 38. This is a tremendous passage of questions. It says one to four there, but I just might read the whole chapter. Job 38. I love Job as a book. Um, I, was originally, I was planning to preach on Job itself, um, but really felt the questions of God on my heart. Um, but I love Job, and listening to Job is, is a really different experience to reading it. Because when you're reading it, there's a lot of couplets in Job. Has God not done this? Has God not done this? Or, you know, just as the... Well, I'm sure I'll find one anyway. But, you know, as high as the sky is, as deep as the sea, there's a load of couplets in Job which you can kind of skim through, but when you listen to it, it's different. One of the most beautiful poems I ever heard someone ever perform um, at a poetry event, was someone perform. I think it's Job 28, it's a chapter about um, God's wisdom through putting like gold and minerals in the depths of the earth. And this person was able just to, not read it, but speak it out as performed poetry. And it was beautiful. And you know, Job is written as a book of poetry. It's one of the earliest books of the Bible. It existed as verbal. So I say all that to say you can't hate me when I read out this whole chapter. Job 38. What's happened is, so, a little bit more context. Job has had a hard time. God has taken his protective force around Job, and he's had a really awful time. His family's died, his wife's died, he's ill, he's going absolutely through the mill, and three of his friends turn up and say, Job, it's clearly your fault, mate. You've done something wrong. And Job at first is saying, nah, 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 I haven't done anything wrong. It's all good. I'll trust in God. Beautiful. Then his friends go, nah, Job, you've really done something wrong. And Job says, why is God running the world like this? God is wrong. How dare he? And he gets kind of, you know, a bit angry and starts making accusations against God. And then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep, have the gates of death been revealed to you, and, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where there is no man, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste in desert land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades, or loose the cores of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in, in, in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can, un, who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? When the dust runs into a mass and the cloud, and the clouds stick fast together. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for lack of food? And it goes on. It goes on. God comes to Job in this whirlwind. And Job has made some fierce accusations about God. And God says, where were you? when I laid the foundations of the earth." The book of Job is about justice. It's about how can the world be just? How can God be just when bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? How can that be so centralised on this one person who was righteous and had bad things happen to him? Yet there's a moment in which Job says, God, you don't know what you're doing. And God responds saying, where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth. God's question is to provoke provoke humility in Job. And it continues. It continues. Can you number the months that they fulfil? Or do you know the time when they give birth? Do you know? Were you there? And the the answer to that question is no, I don't. (laughs) I don't. And the, the answer to the question of who is God. And so God asks questions to transform us, but also to humble us, to make us understand who we are and who he is. And Job 38 to 39, actually through to 40, is beautiful. And Job, it says at the end, Job promises silence. (laughs) Job promises silence. Job's like, you know what, God, I I don't know. I don't. Isaiah 6.1 onwards Let's go to it. Isaiah six. Okay, we'll start actually Isaiah six, eight. Isaiah's commission from the Lord and i this is isaiah heard the voice of the lord saying whom shall i send and who will go for us and i said here i am send me i'm sure we're all familiar with this verse god doesn't say god knows that isaiah is going to go god's already seen it god's seen isaiah's grandchildren already did isaiah have children i bet he didn't did he god's seen god in that moment god knows you in Hope Church has seen the whole history of creation, and God says, Who shall I send? Who will go? Why does God ask that? He could say to Isaiah, I'm sending you, mate. And Isaiah would have gone, Do I have a choice? <laughs> no. Yet God asks the question question: Who shall I send? And God asks questions to, to provoke a reaction from us, but to For us to ask ourselves, is my heart aligned with what God wants? God can say and God does say, you will do this. However, he often asks, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And well, we got 66 chapters in response to that in Isaiah. Jonah. So move on ahead to Jonah. Actually, is it ahead? Where's Jonah grouped Simon? Minor, minor Prophets, yeah. It's a head then. Move on to Jonah. Give you a bit of extra time for this one because it's like a bit difficult to find. I say that I need the extra time, I think. Got it, thank you. Jonah 4. Um, I love a book of Jonah. It's it's lovely. It's It's strange. It's... It's a bit of a mystery in some ways. In Jonah 4, so Jonah 1 to 3, we see God says, Jonah, I'm sending you to these people. And Jonah says, no, you're not sending me to these people. I'm going elsewhere. I'm going to Spain on holiday. And then God kind of redirects Jonah to go to Nineveh. (laughs) And he preaches and Jonah's like, I don't want these people to repent. I don't want these people to have a relationship with God. They're horrible. They're the Hitlers of today's era. And we see this coming together of God and Jonah. Well, Jonah finally turning towards God in chapter four. And it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord God and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said? When I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful, that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O now God, please take my life away from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. (laughs) Another person ready to die in God. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So, Jonah sat there underneath a tree, absolutely fuming that God has allowed these people to repent. Fuming that God showed his compassion. And he said, God, I knew you'd do this because you're so kind. I'm sick of it. Just let me die now. And God, almost like a parent, says, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well? It says here, yeah, do you do well to be angry? Are you right in being mad? Are you okay to be upset there, Jonah? It's, I don't know if it's patronising, but it's parental. It's a parental question, you can imagine it. When a child's all upset and going wild and, you know, having a little fit, and the parent just quietly asks, Are you, are you alright being this angry? Have you got reason to be so concerned? It's counselling. Jonah replies, Well, he went out to the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. So he made a little shade and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. So God gave him shade that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. This is a guy of clear. (laughs) like Big emotions, Jonah's feeling. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And I should not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. I love that ending of the book. Love that end of the book. Do you do well to be angry? God asks this question twice and God uh, appoints a scenario, a situation for which Jonah to actually answer the question. Yes, I do. And God's like, you're upset about a plant dying because it gave you shade and there's 120,000 people that you've brought salvation to. Do you do well to be angry? God's questions counsel us. He supports us emotionally. Jonah needed some assistance, clearly, but also they challenge us and they change us. So if I zoom out, these here are some of the many questions of God. We've been through nine. I know it feels like a whistle-stop tour of a Bible, but God asks questions in order to, provoking us, honesty, for us to confess to him because he wants us to be with him in journey, to provoke worship, to transform us, to commission us, to encounter us, to humble us, but also to challenge us. All that in a question. And so my question or two questions really for us today. One is what does this tell us about the God who we worship? I think it's cute. There's a list up there Are the things that God does with his questions? What does this tell us about who God is? And secondarily, what is God asking of you? What is the question that God is putting to you? I think what would be good right now, we've still got a few minutes, is if we just spend some quiet time and just allow God to ask questions of us. It might be a question of honesty might be a question of confession. might be a question of commission. God might be asking you, why won't you go? God might be asking, will you go? So I'm going to pray and I'll just leave a few moments of quiet. So Lord, we thank you that you are a God of seeing. That you know all things. That all are naked and exposed before you and yet you ask that question ask questions to help us, to challenge us, to change us, and to bring us into closer relationship to you. So Lord, in these last few minutes, I just pray that you'd ask questions to us and that we'd be able to respond, Lord, with honesty and love for you. Amen.